Welcome to Exit Strategy. I'm Stephanie Gary, and the Executive Vice President of Plaza Jewish Community Chapel's Communal Partnerships. And today, we are going to talk about spousal loss. Certainly, each loss we experience is unique, and the loss of a daily companion and partner carries its own significant challenges and risks. I'm so pleased to welcome Cantor Rebecca Garfine and Rick Ellis to Exit Strategy. And you will be describing your own personal paths forward after experiencing spousal loss. And afterwards, we will be joined by Jane Slevin, who is a licensed marriage and family therapist and director of Pathways to Care at Westchester Jewish Community Services to kind of help us put things in perspective. I just want to say that Cantor Garfine is the former senior cantor at Congregation Road of Shalom in New York City and was married to her husband, Marv Gelman, for 19 years. Marv lost a four-year battle against leukemia in 2017. Rick Ellis is a noted presence in the arts community in New York and beyond, and among a stunning list of accomplishments, has written the book for multiple Broadway productions. And Rick's husband, beloved actor and director Roger Reese, died in 2015 of cancer. They were together for more than 30 years. So welcome to both of you. Thank you. Well, hi. Hi. So Cantor Garfine and Rick, I want you, if you would, to please give us a sense of how you're doing in 2022 in the respective time since your losses. Well, I would say better than I could have imagined. I still ride the grief waves. Mm -hmm. but. The life that I'm creating with my family is one that is beyond anything I could have thought of at the time that Mike died. I'm giving myself permission to try things that I was much too afraid of doing uh, when Mike was ill and then subsequently when he died. I think all things being equal, you don't think you're going to have a new chapter. You don't think you're going to go on a new journey when such a tragedy happens. But there is, Rick, forgive me, there is love after love. Yes, you and I have talked about that. And Rick, you and I spoke about that as well. And while I know your journey has not been the same as Rebecca's, please um, share with us how you're doing in 2022. The Brothers Karamazov uh, starts with a, a line I'm going to misquote, but it's along the lines of every happy family is happy in the same way, but unhappy families are happy in their own individual way. And I think that must be true about what we're talking about today. While I take great joy in Rebecca's joy, it doesn't seem to be in the cards for me. I didn't plan this. I'm like a recovering addict, I suppose. I'm, I'm still taking it one day at a time. And if I can get through the day, then I think, okay, I've gotten through today, and then tomorrow we'll see what happens in terms of my, my dealing with loss and grief. I also get to write about it because it's what I do. It, my profession and my avocation are the same thing, and, and that's a great privilege. Because they are the same, I get to explore how I feel in my writing. You know, They say, write what you know, and I think as a little sidebar, that doesn't mean write what you are. It means write what you know about, write what your experience tells you, write what you've learned about. And so I get to do that. And I bore the hell out of my friends <laughs> and my colleagues 
uh, by saying that's what I'm doing. So I don't say that's what I'm doing anymore. But in fact, it's still what I'm doing, uh, even years after Raj died. Uh, and I think he'd be appalled. That's because he was English and, you know, very private and very jolly. And he would say, oh, you know, just get on. I'm just doing it the way I do it. You know, I don't have a plan. After the death of both Marv and Roger, did you seek support anywhere? Was that something that you thought about doing immediately after they died? So I sought out advice from other young widows uh, from our community right after Mike died. And that proved to be enormously helpful to me. And sadly, there were quite a number of young widows within the community that I had either become friends with just because our kids were in choir together and I was teaching the choir yes, or because I sadly buried a spouse. I had now become part of this club that no one wants to be a part of. And literally the day after Mike died, I'll never forget that Heather Randall, that's Tony's widow, Mm -hmm. she texted me and she wanted to sit with me and have coffee. I have no idea what we spoke about. I was in such a fog. But what I will remember is just the generosity of that moment that she came and she sat with me and kind of just made me feel like it was going to be okay. Somehow it was going to be okay. She just came over and just gave me kind of that sense of well-being. There were others as well. There, there was uh, from our community, Tammy Schneider, who started this group primarily on Facebook called Lost and Found, and she immediately invited me to events. There were other people just like me that had gone through this. And my dear friend, Jen Gould, who lost her husband to cancer, who had young children. So those women became very, very important and still very important to me in terms of just kind of getting through the day and just having that support. Sure. And in that time, was faith an important piece for you? Yes. So Mike died on September 11th, which was literally that year, a week before Rosh Hashanah, which also fell on his birthday. And my big birthday was on Kol Nidra. I won't say which birthday. (laughs) That's okay. (laughs) I remember calling my sister-in-law very distraught on Kol Nidra, very unsure that I would be able to go before the community that night and lead Kol Nidra and Davin. My life was just not how I imagined it would be for that specific birthday. And here I am on the holiest of days, and I had just lost my husband of 20 years. I strongly believe that God got me through that moment and enabled me to have the strength to stand before the congregation and lead Kol Nidra. Then I saw my good friend, Rick Ellis. I don't know if you remember this, Rick. I certainly do. I certainly do. And I saw him at Shul. I think I might have been leading the Torah procession. I'm not even sure. He gave me the biggest hug, and we both started burst into tears crying. I'll never forget that. It was the love of my friends and my family along with the guidance of God and literally Mike's spirit, which I felt very strongly was still with me at that moment. That's so, so touching and beautiful. And to have you both on, I thank you for that. 
It's funny that um, that Becky asked me if I remember. I mean, it falls into the categories of, uh, you know, one could never possibly forget. Everyone in the congregation knew what Rebecca had just been through. Everyone in the congregation had known what was happening with Mike. So to see her there that day was sort of God speaking to us and letting us know how important it is to be part of something larger than yourself, even in times when you feel so completely alone and um, so completely isolated, perhaps. So to see Rebecca up there on the Bema and to hear her magnificent voice, which frankly is, is why I and my family have joined that synagogue in the first place, it was especially powerful because while she felt Mike was there, so did we all. And to see her there experiencing that, it felt like an especially holy holiday. The power of community and coming together to support people in these moments is palpable. And for you, Rick, you have the theater community. I would assume that that's where you went in terms of finding your support at that time immediately after Roger died. I was visiting in those days a therapist once a week. I think she was pretty much the only person I spoke to other than immediate family members. But even the immediate family members, you know, people say, I can't imagine what you're going through. And when that's true, it's because they haven't gone through it and they actually can't imagine. And so therefore, they're not particularly helpful to talk to. It's almost like you have to give therapy to them so that they feel better about having spoken to you. And then I've never felt the exhaustion I felt in those days immediately after but the immediate aftermath was very, very hard. And once the funeral was over and uh, sitting Shiva was over, I really sort of just kept to myself. I would go to Friday night services and I would sit in the back because I wanted to hear Rebecca. I needed the comfort of the sound of her voice, which I guess is like the comfort of God's hand on my shoulder. But I was very angry at God at that moment, you know, at that time, because I do not and still don't understand, especially, you know, these days as we think about it more and more, I do not understand the taking of good people before their time. You know, this was a man who was never sick ever in all the years that I knew him. And then suddenly, you know, he's told you have terminal brain cancer and and you're going to die a horrible death and then you're going to be dead and it's going to happen very quickly. You better get your affairs in order. We were so flummoxed by that pronouncement and, and what to do. And then Raj, bless him, you know, got to leave. And I still had to deal with it. You know, I was still flummoxed. It was uh, July 10th when he died. And, and I didn't really resurface until the memorial, which was 10 weeks later. The organizing of that and putting together of that became an activity that sort of saved me. But in the immediate aftermath, I just sort of turned inward and didn't emerge for many, many weeks. Interesting how you touched on this. And I do want to talk about it because I think this is an issue for those who are grieving, is that the mourners tend to take care of those who are coming to pay a condolence call. And we hear, and you say, very often that you're the ones who are taking care of those while just the opposite is supposed to be happening. Yeah. Can you talk about in those moments, if you can remember, what would have been something more helpful to you? Oh, I'll dive in while Rebecca thinks, because uh, because I, I work in the theater, and uh, there was a day, the last day of Shiva, a couple of stage managers came 
Mm. And one of them, uh, Michelle Bosch, who had stage managed Jersey Boys for 12 years at that point, and I had become, you know, very friendly. And she knew Roger, of course, over the years. And she came and she started stage managing the Shiva. You know, she put herself between me and the people who were coming. And she, you know, what do you need? Here's something to eat. You want some coffee? I'll make another pot of coffee. You know, we're out of locks. I'll call Zabars and have them send over some more. And she just started taking care of things. She started stage managing the Shiva. And I remember sitting there thinking, thank God she's here because suddenly I realized how exhausted I was and how much it was taking out of me to keep the bubble in the air. You know, you want to be presentable, I suppose. I I guess there are people who close themselves away in a room and and nobody can speak to them. But, you know, you try to be a public face to this grief and be there for the people who are coming because, you know, you love them and they love you. And it seems like it's part of the ritual almost. Maybe that's part of the whole idea of Shiva and Shloshim is to draw people back into the world. But it was great having her there that day to run interference for me. It was really wonderful. And that's a great way of putting it. She stage managed the Shiva. Yeah, you know, there's just so much to do. And if you're a single person suddenly for the first time in your adult life, everything, the smallest little thing brushing your teeth becomes sometimes an obstacle, you know? Sure. So to have somebody there who was just taking care of things was really helpful. And Rebecca, for you... It's kind of on on a similar scale and something that I I didn't want to learn, but I learned is rather than say to the mourner, what can I do for you? I know people are trying to be helpful, but it's not helpful. That now the onus is on the mourner to figure out what is it that I need at this moment to get through the day. It's so much more helpful to just think of things the person might need like food, simple thing, Not don't send over platters of food. My community sent uh, from the caring committee, they were brilliant about it, my, the caring committee. They sent seamless cards that my family could order food. And I'm telling you, I don't think we had to think about it for about a year. We had so much seamless. It was insane. <laughs> and that was so thoughtful because, you know, just to send over food, you don't know if people have allergies or sure. know, the kids are finicky anyway, but to send a seamless card where the kids could pick and choose from you know dozens of New York City restaurants was extremely helpful. So I think it's things, little things like that, or having somebody run interference like Rick had at the house is incredible because it's, it's a lot. I recently saw a documentary called Love and Stuff. It's by a filmmaker, Judith Helfand. It talks about the stuff. And people talk about, oh my gosh, I'm surrounded by the stuff of our lives together. So talk for a moment about your possessions that you shared. Did you go through the house? What did you keep? Oh, I left Mike's belongings in the closets and drawers for at least a good year. I would open the closet. I would look, I would smell him, but I couldn't bear to to move them. I just, I'd look, I'd open, shut, I'd walk away. It took a long time to deal with that aspect of things. Some people come in or have a family member come in. I could, I just couldn't even bear to do it. Mm-hmm. I eventually did give many of his things away, knowing that someone would be appreciative and maybe use these things because he had beautiful suits and 
maybe they would be able to go and get a job. But I did keep most of his ties. He had a huge collection of ties, except the ones I hated. (laughs) Probably like maybe three or four, to be honest, because he had good taste. And I kept his special collection of like concert t-shirts. And I kept those to give to my boys for when they get older. I also kept a few of his coats and a suit or two that were really quintessentially Mike, because Mm -hmm. I really thought someday my kids will appreciate having these things. I, of course, have his drum set. He was a drummer in a rock band throughout high school and college. And and he had a huge collection, no surprise, of music, CDs, and tapes that I have that's surrounding me. Believe it or not, my new thing now, I, I have to find a teacher. I want to learn how to play drums. That's great. I have to learn. I'm going to just do it. I've been dreaming about it. I'm like, I keep saying next life. I'm like, no, I'm not waiting to the next life. I'm going to do it in this life. Good. And then, of course, we moved to New Jersey to, into the very house that Mike grew up in. We're really surrounded by his very essence. I feel him all the time. He's like, he's on one shoulder. My dear friend Jenny is on the other shoulder guiding. I just feel that they're a constant presence, which is very reassuring to me. It's very comforting to me that I still feel that he's with me. He's hovering. It's very comforting to have this house and to have this place as a a refuge. A real sanctuary for you. A real sanctuary for us. The blessing. And Rick. So one of the things I learned from him was that stuff doesn't matter. So we were always getting rid of stuff because we're both kind of natural hoarders. We lived in several places over the years. The only thing that we took from place to place generally were books. I still have an apartment full of books. I mean, it's sort of ridiculous how many books there are because I've now outgrown the capacity to put them on shelves. I don't get rid of the books. We used to share clothes a lot. Some of the clothes that I would have been wearing, whether he were alive or not, I'm still wearing. I haven't done the big giveaway. Um, Well-meaning friends and family in the immediate aftermath were very, very strict with me about, you know, you have to wipe everything out and start over again and seize life by the, you know, whatever. So I very obediently tried to consider moving from what became ultimately our home, which is this apartment I'm in now, which, you know, we moved into 26 years ago, just to get people to stop talking about it. I felt I'll just fine, I'll move. And every time I came home from looking at another apartment, I thought, I don't, I don't want to move from here. This is the home that we built together. And it's not about stuff. It's about that feeling of home. You know, when you close the door behind you and you think, oh, I'm here again. Now, of course, that's a feeling and you can take that feeling wherever you go. But I lost that sense of obedience. I want to stay on the book theme for a moment, Rick, because... I know that two years after Roger's death, you wrote a beautiful, beautiful book called Finding Roger, an improbably theatrical love story. And I read a review recently. And of course, the story is a memoir about your late husband and your relationship. And you said in this review, this book is me searching for that piece of Raj, any piece of him, and finally finding it. And who knows, somewhere in this story of love and loss, you might find yourself as well. Did I say that? That's good. (laughs) I thought it was good. (laughs) I want you just to talk for a moment about the writing of this book as it related to this process that you were going through in terms of grief. 
the writing of it, or I should say really the compiling of it, happened in the, the fall after the summer that Roger died. I didn't compose it as therapy, but it became that. The book is, of course, about Raj, but it's not entirely about him. It's, it's also about the nature of grief and whether or not returning to a quote-unquote normal life afterward is even possible. Mm-hmm. I think that's what I meant when I said that thing that you just read, that you know maybe you might find something like that yourself. It's mostly the text of a personal journal that I kept in the run-up to Roger's dying, and then what it was like in the immediate aftermath of his dying. And it's a series of reflections in that sense. And I tried to make it extremely candid because our lives, while we were living them, there were very public aspects of our lives, but most of our lives were extremely private because Roger was an extremely private person and I just did whatever he told me to do. So (laughs) the anger and the, the bewilderment that I felt towards God leading up to the day that Roger died is very much a part of sections of this book and my impressions during the first year afterwards of what life would be like without him. The book is about all of that and how my sense of loss was and and still is really marked by a process of trying to move in and out of various stages of grief and remembrance and, and spirituality. Ultimately, I think this is because friends and family who chose not to give up on me because I'm sure it, it was wildly boring and, and taxing on everybody that I knew to be around me, which is why I tried to keep taking myself out of circulation. But I, I redefined my grief through the writing of the book, or I try to because it's, a, it's an ongoing process. For me, I keep redefining my grief. You know, I've tried redefining it as gratitude, mostly gratitude for having received and experienced the gift of a true love in my life. Rebecca, I just want to talk a little bit about your newfound love and a new home that you mentioned. What was that process like for you as as you walk through this? For a long time, I would say I was in a big fog. Eventually, Friends said, you know, you're a young woman, you have two children, maybe it's time for you to put yourself back out in the dating world. So (laughs) (laughs) I did put myself on on a dating app and then I would go on and and I would get either frustrated or disgusted (laughs) and I'd go off and then I'd try a different one. And, you know, this kind of went on and on. and, And then I met my Alexander. It was kind of one of those things, everything had to line up. And again, I was really scared. So I kind of took my time. We got married during COVID. We moved to this house a year ago, like completely moved here. I guess what's so incredible about all of it is that when Mike passed, when he died, I just, I never imagined there was another chapter And I keep coming back to this because I didn't believe at that time that there would be love after love. I thought I had that. And now I have these two boys and I'm going to raise them and I'm going to do the best job I can do as a single mom. So this was a whole other window I couldn't see at the time. Rick, I want to circle back to A Grief Observed because you did talk to me about that a lot when we spoke and how that book by C.S. Lewis really informed your path to a degree. I came across this very thin volume called A Grief Observed, C.S. Eliot. He married in his 50s 
and they were married for maybe five years. And then she died of cancer and he wrote about his grief. And this guy uh, with whom I clearly had nothing in common other than that we were both widowed at about the same age, wrote this maybe, you know, it's a quarter of an inch thick. It's a small little volume. But I felt really like in that way when sometimes an author feels Alan Bennett describes it as, as you know, a, a hand reaching out from the page of the book and to put a hand on your arm when you can connect like that to an author who isn't even alive anymore. You can feel them reaching out from the page in commonality. That's how I felt reading A Grief Observed, because the first thing he said was no one ever told me that grief feels so much like fear. Then he, he thought, oh, well, it's not it's not fear per se, like being scared of a monster movie. It's being left in suspense. You went through your life thinking things were permanent and now everything feels provisional. So that fear of what's going to happen next, what am I going to lose now? Who am I going to lose now? How am I going to hold on to the things and the people that are dear to me, even if such a thing is possible? How am I supposed to move on? People keep telling me to move on. How do I move on without my arms and my legs? When I saw, how do I move on without my arms and my legs? I just stopped reading and put the book down and thought, this guy understands exactly how I feel. Of course, he also said that you know, part of misery is you don't merely suffer, but you have to keep on thinking about the fact that you're suffering. That is the chasing your tail cycle of eventually, if you can break out of it, great. You, you, know, you can get the beds made, but you might be in it again tomorrow. This thinking about it, thinking about the suffering, that was exactly the moment where the phone rang and it was Cher, improbably. It's not like I knew her. And she had called me right in the thick of Roger starting to get really, really ill. You know, she said, I want you to write a show about me. And I said, I can't. And she thought maybe I was saying no when I really meant yes, because she didn't need me. And so I was, but, and so she kept calling. And finally I said, you have to stop. And then she did. And then I put down the C.S. Lewis book and the phone rang and it was Cher. And she said, I've read everything that, that's happened. I know everything that happened. She had actually met Roger in the 60s when they were both kids and they were both on Broadway together in 1981. She said, why don't you come out here and we'll just spend some time. At the very least, we should become friends. We'll, we can talk about Roger. We can talk about Sonny. It's time for you to rejoin the human race, she said. And I said, Cher, I can't believe you're quoting Thornton Wilder because it's a very famous line from the, a play that Thornton Wilder wrote called The Matchmaker about a widow who talks to her dead husband on stage. And she said, no, I'm quoting Hello, Dolly. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. And I laughed just like you'd laughed. And I realized it was the first time that I'd laughed in, in the three months since Roger had died. So I said, okay, I'm going to go out there. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make an effort to rejoin the human race. And I went out. We just talked about finding life after love, how she managed to do it, and whether I would be able to manage to do it. But it, at least as an assignment, it didn't seem to be hopeless. It seemed, it seemed to be hopeful. For me, it was a grief observed coupled with an opportunity from an actual person that I could see who was saying, here's a window, like Rebecca was just talking about. You can choose to climb through it if you want, or you can shut it if you want. And if you climb through it, there is some suspense. And I thought that the suspense of what that would be beat the suspense of wondering who the next person was going to be that I was going to lose, or what was the next precious thing that I was going to have to do without. It was that combination of C.S. Lewis and Cher. 
two names that have probably never been mentioned in the same sentence before. So this is a first. I do believe that out of trauma and grief does come personal growth in some way. And before we end this conversation, I would just love to hear about where you are today and how you view your personal growth over these past years. I try to forgive myself more and give myself grace more now. I am in general very hard on myself more than anybody. And I'm trying to not do that to myself, even though that's hardwired into the person that I am. But one of the things I'm most proud of is that I feel like I'm able to pursue things and dreams that I've had that maybe before this all happened with Mike's death and I would have been too afraid to do or I wouldn't have given myself permission to do. I allowed myself to love again. I don't take that for granted. I think you have a choice in that. I think first and foremost, I'm putting my children's welfare first. And I feel that I owe them that after the trauma they've suffered at such a young age. I want to give them the happiest life possible that Alexander and I can provide for them. Their happiness is my highest priority in life at this stage of the game. So that means doing things differently. That's more important to me now. In that regard, hindsight has been a very helpful teacher. And Rick? I'm trying to find ways to enjoy the journey. You know, I I feel very lucky to be working. It's always been a good thing for me to do. I try to get the right words in the right order. And if I can succeed in doing that, maybe I can nudge the world a little bit. As Tom Stoppard says, that's how I can live with myself. So I don't fancy myself to be an artist. I think of myself really more as a worker. But to work in an artistic field like theater is something that's uh, a privilege that's not lost on me. Well, the privilege of speaking to both of you today and to being in conversation with both of you was a gift, not only to me, but to all these people who are listening. I thank you for sharing your heart and your honesty. I'm now going to turn this conversation, as I said initially, to Jane Slevin. I'm really curious to hear from you as you put the top on the kettle for us a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> and to talk to us a bit about your perspective and just give us a closing thought or two, please. I want to say wow, because both of you shared such heartwarming stories of love. A number of themes emerge from both of you and, you, you know, you both took slightly different tracks, but there are very common themes and with grief and grieving, there usually are. It's every grief is unique. It's, it's like a fingerprint, but there are commonalities. I think that there's no closure at the same time we're holding on and letting go. And grief is something that we grow with and go through. We don't ever get over it. I think that that's something that both of you spoke to today. There are new chapters that we have love after love in some cases, which is wonderful. At the same time, the relationship that we had with our spouses still lives on. It lives on, you have feeling, whether it's the feeling that Rebecca, you talked about when you're wearing his clothes or his essence or feeling the presence of Roger in the room. I think there's a, a myth that people think that grief gets smaller 
But really, in reality, our grief stays the same, but slowly our life grows around the grief. And that's where the healing comes through. You talked about post-traumatic growth, where there's this chance for love, there are new opportunities, new paths, and the journey and Kuhn alum, it's all very positive. Grief is a continuum. It's never linear. There's a few steps forward, a few steps back, and there'll be always those times that you get a tug or something will trigger it. And that's just the way that life is. I love that you guys talked about gratitude. We talk about that a lot in our groups too, because that's really what keeps us going. And also where you find your strength, whether it's spiritual, you find it in community. There's so many different ways that people find this. And just to remember the specialness that you have had and that that will never leave. I think also, can you have a normal life again? And I think you both spoke to that. Yes. To end something on a positive note that here you are, Rebecca, have a new career path. You have a new husband. You have a family. You're spending time with your children that you never got to do. So it's been such a growth opportunity and for writing the plays and being able to touch people in that way. So I feel again, like for me, hearing your stories is so affirming and I would just urge anyone who's listening and has had, has suffered a loss that to reach out, to reach out, their groups are wonderful. They're evidence-based that they really help people through their grief to reach out to people. Don't, don't sit with it. I loved what you said that as opposed to grief being the driving force as it is early on, we then find life around the grief. And I think that's a visual that one can really hold on to. And of course, the gratitude that we always surely, hopefully can find in life certainly helps us. Thank you, Jane Slevin. Greatly appreciated. Thank you all. It was wonderful. As the host of Exit Strategy, I thank you for tuning in to what I hope was an informative and illuminating conversation. I urge you to visit our show notes and there's an email listed there. So if you have any questions, send them my way. In the meantime, please share this episode with anyone you know who may be interested and subscribe to Exit Strategy. Wherever you find your podcast, we will renew our conversation with another topic, and I'm really happy you're along for the ride. I'm Stephanie Gary, and this is Exit Strategy.